0: The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann.
1: So it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Austin Zecker to the uh, Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Uh, Austin is a director at Eight Roads, a global VC who've invested six Billion dollars during the past twelve years in startups and scale-ups. He invests in fintech and uh, enterprise software startups. Formerly with Apex Partners, Alston also founded and led the mobile payments, mobile point of sale venture Payleven, who merged with SumUp five years ago. So, Alston, it's uh, lovely to have you on the show.
0: Thanks very much, Gary. Uh, very kind of you to invite me to be here. Great, uh, great to speak with you.
1: So, uh, so, Austin, since we last spoke, which was one month ago, one very long month ago in mid-middle mid, of March 2020, uh, your wife's had a baby, so congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. And the entire world has slipped into a dystopian COVID-19 lockdown So, how have you and your family been coping with the pandemic?
0: You know, it's times like this that I think one's really thankful for for family and for just the simple things in life. And, you know, we're here in London, we're not in the largest of properties and we don't have a big space to go out to. But having my, my wife, having my elder son who's seven, and now this new baby to keep me grounded and really focused on things. It's, it's actually had its pleasant moments, dare I say it. Um, <laughs> obviously, obviously one has to be aware of just the, the tremendous human tragedy that's going on around the world. And I don't want to make light of that and the ongoing economic tragedy that is starting to take place as well. But I suppose what I mean by this is, there's always times that one needs for reflection and being with family and although this has been enforced by tragic circumstances i'd like to look at the silver lining and that certainly has been the silver lining for my family and me all
1: right so nice nice words there um so let's move on to your portfolio what advice have you been giving them to help them navigate through these turbulent times
0: i think I- well, before i get on to talking about the advice that we've given to our portfolio companies i think there's been a tremendous amount that i've also learned from the great management teams at our portfolio companies as well we've we, i happen to work with a number of entrepreneurs who were either business people or actually were entrepreneurs also during the the last major crisis 12 years ago during the the great financial crisis and Just the the resilience and focus that some of these entrepreneurs have brought to their business. They've had to make some tough decisions that has sometimes included some difficult decisions about some employees and some team members. But just the tremendous humanity and humility with which they've taken these difficult decisions has, has been a tremendous learning for me. And the way that they have, I wouldn't say seamlessly, but very pragmatically shifted from looking upwards and onwards for growth to taking all of these difficult actions now in order to preserve and be ready for growth again in the future. It's It's been tremendous to see that. And as much as they've been speaking with us about what we're seeing, from a macroeconomic perspective, what we're seeing globally in our portfolio, it's this human interaction, again, as I as I talked about on that personal level with my family, but also here with some of the tremendous entrepreneurs with whom I work. It's been a great dialogue. But specifically, when we've been talking to our portfolio companies about what we've been seeing, we've focused on a couple of areas. I think as with We've likened it to the stages of grief and denial, that you go through a number of steps. And to begin with, there is an element of denial. And there will be moments later on where there is almost anger and resentment. And in the same way, I think we've been talking about the need to go from crisis, crisis handling mode, to a period of stabilization, to a period of planning and preparing for when one emerges from the crisis, and then lastly, actively looking then to harness growth. And that's a very simple framework, but I think it's been a nice way that we've used to talk about how we can get through this, this difficult time together. And how some of our teams can use that also at a human level to discuss with their own team members and their employees and how they can not lose sight of the bigger picture while also not getting too caught up with things that are too far out and remaining in the moment, if that makes sense. And so we've talked very much within that context and then looked at all the different elements of the company's strategy, the the big picture market strategy, the operations, the financing of course um, and, and and lastly also the people side of things, probably most importantly
1: you had various stages in that explanation the crisis handling mode, the stabilized mode as companies shift into the stabilization mode before they start planning for reemergence, what are the, some of the things that you' suggesting they focus on during that particular phase
0: you know i I think that's where we get into an element of detail that depends quite a bit by the industry vertical and the customer base to whom they are selling and there are still some unknowns out there Um, not my own portfolio company but on the b2c side of things some of our firm's portfolio companies have not seen any disruption in their business, uh, especially those who are purely online. And some of the companies with whom I work, who cater for, who provide software for B2C companies, are in a similar way seeing that, that, things are, that trading continues to be very strong. And in a couple of instances, growth has actually accelerated. So I think the stabilization phase is different for different business models. Some people haven't skipped a beat. Others, if I'm going to be honest, are still in the crisis handling mode. But I think when we think more generically about the opportunity to get into the stabilization mode, I think this is when you, we talked about the people side of things and operations. I think that's where you start there first. It's establishing new ways of working and working from home finding ways to keep the team connected, finding ways to keep the team motivated again. And, and often what we're finding is there has been this tremendous blitz-like spirit of coming together at, at a difficult time. And for those of our portfolio companies who are, I would say now, into this more stabilization mode, that's that's been a really good thing. I think also, What we've tried to spend time on is not overburdening the companies when they think about KPIs and metrics, but I do think that this has really focused the mind on what are the top three to five leading indicators for the health of the business. Because in any crisis, things can change very quickly, and especially in this current pandemic where everyone is having to think on their feet, everyone from government through to healthcare professionals, through to the policies that affect us commercially and so we're, we're trying to isolate what are the top three to five leading indicators that that can really keep the pulse on the health of the business
1: and those those top three to five leading indicators are they company and sp- situation specific or are they likely to be pretty widespread across the majority of companies
0: I think the actual metrics are business model specific, but I think they probably won't be too much of a surprise. It's about understanding the health of your own customers and your customers' engagement with you, your business. It's about being able to see the the level of engagement of your employees and the productivity there. And it's about keeping a very close eye on some of the top one or two operational metrics that, that you track, that you were probably tracking beforehand anyway. I, I think though it's just putting greater emphasis on the the, the level of real time um, information availability that's needed.
1: It's well documented that some large tech players like Zoom Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft—they've actually rapidly boosted their revenues as a result of the lockdowns. Um, and you alluded to the fact a few moments ago that you got some some businesses in the wider uh, portfolio that are doing reasonably well. So, are there any companies in your portfolio that are enjoying real lockdown uplift and a real spike in revenues?
0: There are certainly some of our portfolio companies who are trading strongly and have remained have have remained um, on in some cases ahead of plan. I think it's always it, it it one has to be careful how one phrases this I think uplift is is not the right way of talking about these things at a at a time of global global crisis and global tragedy. I think our portfolio companies who support their customers for their core needs that happen to be increased at a time like this are continuing to do very well. But our portfolio companies themselves have also at the same time had to work very hard to be sensitive and aware of government health guidelines, social distancing, and so on. And and so... I think we've certainly seen strength in the order book for some of our companies, but I suppose that hasn't come with its, its own complications and efforts as well.
1: You're a strong believer that the war for capital is a key competitive differentiator, and you've experienced this both as an entrepreneur and as an investor. Um, so what advice do you have for tech entrepreneurs looking to use Access to capital as a differentiator, and how does the current crisis feed into your views on the war for capital?
0: It's it's a great question, Gary, and let me let me come back in a bit more detail to that in a moment. I think the first thing though I I need to say was the biggest insight that came to me as an entrepreneur was because that was a big blind spot for me. And I think that's been a blind spot for a lot of the entrepreneurs with whom I've worked over the years subsequently. I certainly don't want to overemphasize the capital piece though, because I am still such a big believer that the product and the customers within the wider context of the market, are the most important strategic questions underpinned, of course, by the team. And I have occasionally, in a minority of cases, found some companies who are overly focused on the finance and capital side of things. I wouldn't say at the expense of the others, but but I'd certainly say where the balance hasn't been quite right. So I, you know, I am ultimately a, a product guy, and the the companies who with whom I most enjoy working are product-led or certainly have very strong products, which then creates all sorts of virtuous cycles with their customers and, and for their long-term, their long-term success. Uh, that's, that's why we work with companies such as Funnel, whom I know you've also discussed in previous podcasts, because it's just such a great team who, who are so laser-focused on building great products. That said, the point about capital is a very apt one, so let's come back to that now. I think for me, I had all these great ideas as an entrepreneur about building a great product in a, in a great growing market. We did our best to assemble a strong team. And the big blind spot for us was this attitude that quite often, especially with technical founders, that if you build it, they will come. People aren't nowadays so naive as to believe they'll build a great product and then customers will come. I think it's very well covered how you you also need to have a very effective go-to-market. And and I, I think over the years, I've seen a much greater awareness of that here in Europe uh, with the scale-ups that we work. It's something that I think that we in Europe have learned quite a great deal over the years from from counterparts in the States who are still, I would say, the masters of that. But the blind spot has been, if I build great product and I'm starting to show the customer traction, that I'll get the funding. And I think that the blind spot has often been, that this is a very nuanced question. How much funding? Who are you going to get the funding from? Who are you going in future to be able to get funding from? And what is what are the competitive dynamics for funding from my direct and indirect co- competitors and i think that's been a tremendous blind spot for a number of companies with whom i've spoken i think when you when you step back as an entrepreneur and you do your online research you just see all these stories of seed rounds and series a and b and c and it just seems like there's this generic situation where you go to and the funding comes through but i think what a number of people don't necessarily realize is that the The need to differentiate yourself and to create a story also has to resonate with the different sources of capital. And even if you don't see too much direct competition for capital, just in the same way as your customers might say, I can solve this problem with a couple of other solutions that don't look directly like yours. Well, from the funding side of things as well, a lot of people will be asking the question, well, if, if there's already investments that sit in and around this space, what is it that's unique about you that I should be putting my risk capital to work here? And one of the things that I often spend a lot of time thinking about nowadays is, is this company able, not just in this round, but in future, also to raise more funding? Who else has been investing in and around this space? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? if there are a lot of other investors who've shown interest in this space already. That's a signal that this is a very interesting area, that there's lots of smart people who are are enthused about a space, but that might mean that in future people will already have made commitments to other parts of the, the sector where you are and that means that they are unwilling or unable to participate in future funding rounds It might mean that you have certain consortia that are building around certain companies and that can create a crimp on your ability in future to attract the right combination of investors. Because as well as talking about the capital that you need to raise, you would like, I think, most of the time to think about who's coming with that money. And I think most entrepreneurs nowadays appreciate that while there are many pools of capital that can just help to fill the coffers for the company, at this point in time, even in the current crisis, once we come out of this, we'll still be in a very low interest rate environment. There will still be this overbearing search for yield in investments. And so there will be pools of capital that I think will be available. But how do you bring the right set of investors as well?
1: But what about the areas that are genuinely groundbreaking, innovative, creating a brand new category, you'll have much less of a signal from the market as to whether this is going to be a success, whether there's going to be an appetite for follow on capital, etc. So how do you make a judgment call?
0: I'll probably get a lot of flack from some very, very technical founders out there who are, really at the bleeding edge of many things. But, you know, what I would say is, from my perspective as a commercial person, and and I mean that as an investor, but also when I was an entrepreneur, it's about the job to be done, the problem to be solved. And when you frame the initial question about the product and the market in that way, I think what you often find is there's fewer truly unique truly out there solutions than many of us would think at first blush when looking at a company i i alluded earlier to having to having to think about indirect competition as well and so within that context i would say especially for us thinking about enterprise software or fintech solutions there are of course new ways Uh, i I won't go on all those buzzwords but you know we all know them you know ai etc that that the specific way of approaching the problem is is truly unique but the overall context of how do you solve that problem and and what is that problem to be solved may not quite be so so unique and so that's usually the first place where i start it's again, it's the problem to be solved, it's the customers out there, and it's the market, and the market readiness for this particular flavor of a solution. And at that point in time, I think one can fall back on, to, to a large extent, a lot of the old heuristics about does this make sense, does this team creating the way, and so on. There have been situations, including in our own portfolio, so we were an early investor, in, in Neo Technologies, which is the world's leading graph database company. And when we first invested in them, they certainly were growing a new category, which is graph databases, which when we invested in 2011, there were some questions about whether this would be a thing at all. Now, there was a bet that we were taking there, but, but Emil and his team made a very compelling case for it. And again, coming back to the problem to be solved, we were able to get comfortable with the fact that these non-SQL based uh, relational databases, that this was a very efficient way of solving the problem. We didn't quite know how big things would get. I think the great thing is that Neo has continued to grow very strongly year on year as the leader in a category that is itself growing and being at the the forefront of that. But but even then, again, I think it came back to that, that core question of there is a problem to be solved and this is going to be an enduring problem and this approach happens to be the best.
1: I know you've also got strong views on the growth models that VCs typically look to invest in the three-year sprint to 100 million ARR and a sexy valuation and a big exit, Um, whereas you tend to prefer companies working on perfecting their product market fit, scaling at a more sustainable pace and building a really strong and defensible market. So could you walk us through your investment thesis and and the implications for early-stage startups looking to get onto your radar?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Gary. I mean, far be it for me to say that I I wouldn't want to meet with a very rapidly scaling business that that is able to what what is it that these Silicon Valley investors call it the uh, the 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 two what what is it it's it's, it's the two t three d you know double triple triple double um, hmm. as as the path to to a hundred million and and. You know, we've been fortunate enough to have a portfolio company, AppsFlyer, that actually ended up being quite close to that, to to that perfect archetype of extremely rapid growth. Uh, I think Oren's thinks that. I think Orrin's research showed that they are in the top ten or fifteen companies to get to hundred million ARR uh, fastest um, in the last ten years. But but that said, I think as you correctly alluded, sustainable competitive differentiation, great products, that's where I know you can build lasting value. And there are many ways to achieve a great lasting business. Size is only a proxy for that. And if you can continue to grow very strongly while your market expands, and Neo is a great example of that, where they are now within touching distance of the 100 million ARR, then that is not only a another way of achieving it, but it's one that can be more measured where you can continue to be in control of your own destiny and your market's destiny, as it were, as you're defining a new market with your great product. And so f- for me, I really enjoy working with technical founders who have strong commercial nows. And that doesn't mean that they themselves have to have been a software engineer in the past, but having that founding team that really has inbuilt into their DNA a deep understanding of what they're building and why and how. The actually under the hood, they are able to overcome any challenges or limitations with what they're building over the arc of the next few years, five, six, seven years to come. I think as technology becomes increasingly sophisticated, this is becoming a key element of competitive differentiation, not just having a great tech, but having a team that is truly on top of what they're building, and the ability then to relate that to the key commercial aspects of what their customers need, I think that is so critically important. And and for too long in enterprise software, I think people have taken the view that oh, the thing just needs to work. And I'm I'm being very simplistic here, and I'll, I'll probably get a lot of flack for saying this, but It's just one person's opinion. But I think nowadays in 2020, where we've taken so many strides in the last five, six years in terms of thinking about architecture and scalability and compute, I think if you're a team now who isn't totally on top of this and who isn't able almost to be a great consultative partner to your own customers in the enterprise software space and have a good view about where their tech needs are heading so that you can anticipate that and continue to delight them with great products. Uh, I I think that it's, over the next few years, going to be quite challenging for a number of SaaS businesses.
1: Indeed. So who, who are the investors and entrepreneurs who've inspired you in your journey, Alston? so i've i've been
0: extremely lucky to work in many different parts of the should we call it the value chain in the technology and in the fintech space over the years and so over the last 20 years that i've been working i've picked up little pieces from different people and i think that the list is is, is potentially quite a long one. But, it, but if I highlight, I suppose, three or four individuals that have really, really helped me. Um, so back in the day when I was at Apex, I worked with a company called Travelex. And the founder of that business is Lloyd Dorfman, who's now Sir Lloyd and is very well known because of the sponsorship of the National Theatre and so on. Lloyd is an old school entrepreneur. I believe he, after he left school, he had the option to go to university and didn't bother and started building Travelex from a, a single Bureau de Change. Um, I, I believe it was near the King's Road. And over time, by the time I started working with him and with TravelX, had grown to a very substantial business that was now involved in technology for moving money cross-border for SMEs, as well as providing card products and so on. And Lloyd just had this ability to boil things down to the really simple things that mattered. And whether there were all these additional bells and whistles with technology or making business complicated, he would always boil down to what really mattered commercially and I think in this day and age where we often get distracted by how whiz-bang the tech is and new frameworks that come out, whether that be coming out of something like Harvard Business Review or books written by VCs or so on, I think just still be able to step back and distill things down to the basic human needs and principles. I absolutely love that. At the other end, from sophisticated approach to thinking about markets i i still really love going back and reading the memos from howard Marks, and reminders that will will be too tempted especially in what we do in in venture to say this time it's different that that no actually it's 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 probably not different you know history doesn't repeat but it echoes and 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 those memos that Howard Marks releases every few months—that's always my go-to for just again reminding myself about the big picture. And and thirdly, there are some extremely experienced venture investors that I've I've met over the years, and I wouldn't want to talk about so too many of them right now. So I'll, I'll go with something slightly different where. Our our senior managing partner who has run the Eight Roads um, venture franchise out in Asia for the better part of the last two decades is a gentleman called Daniel Auerbach. Of course, he's a very experienced investor and is, is extremely insightful, but it's the human side to things that he brings that I think is just absolutely delightful. He's worked with companies ranging from Alibaba to um, other I- business that have IPOs, such as such as Innovant um, out in Southeast Asia. But what he always brings is a tremendous sense of humor, tremendous groundedness, and real charm in his interactions all the time. And again, it's that human side of things that he's able to charm whoever he's in a room with to speak diplomatically but always to get his point across and always still to have a twinkle in his eye and still to to enjoy the interactions. I think that often gets lost so much. Uh, not so true, I guess, right now in terms of COVID, but uh, many people talk about how the world is getting increasingly fast and busy and increasingly transactional and and being reminded still about the human touches and interactions that that has been been really really powerful for me
1: and that that's been a recurring theme throughout this conversation you've referenced in a number of situations uh, humanity and humility so um it's been been lovely to to hear how you've you've emphasized those those points just one final question from me um the one that got away the one company you wish you'd invested in, you perhaps did have an opportunity to invest, but for whatever reason you passed or or they passed the opportunity passed you by, Um, who's the one that got away?
0: (laughs) So I'm only allowed to pick one.
1: (laughs) Wow. Okay, we can let you have two. Go on.
0: (laughs) No, 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 that's... That's, that's fine. Um, I, I, let's, let's try and focus it just, just on the, just on the, you know, just, just on the one, I suppose. Well, back in the day, um, you know, I, I'd known, we, we'd we known Tom Blomfeld for, for a fair amount of time. And so when, when Monzo was first launching and then at a number of subsequent occasions, we had conversations with, with the company. And look, I think I think they've built a great business and love the product and just couldn't quite get there ourselves. And it pains me as myself having been a fintech entrepreneur, not quite being able to have pushed the boat out for a number of different reasons over time. I, I, I think that's that's been something that's really made me step back and think uh, and, and ha- had to make me reframe how, how I thought about risk and rewards and, and creating a, a new business model, a new business paradigm. And, and there, there, are, there are one or two other echoes on that theme, I suppose. But I guess that's what's so tremendous about the industry in which we operate and what's so exciting about this current time, that there are these amazing business models, tech-enabled companies that are, that are growing as we speak. And there'll be even more coming out of the corona crisis. And you win some, you lose some. I, I, I think you, know, you have to have tremendous respect for the people who take those risks and those chances. And, and then you just sort of dust yourself off and get ready for the next opportunity.
1: Indeed, well, so many amazing companies started out the last two crises, actually. So I'm sure you're right. There'll be some fabulous companies emerging over the next few months and quarters, and they'll be on everyone's lips in five years time, 10 years time, they'll be the, the next stars of the tech world. So looking forward to coming across some of those businesses and hopefully you'll have the chance to invest in some of those businesses over the next few quarters.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to it. And, you know, like I said, crisis, stabilization, planning, but then growth. And <laughs> we, don't, we don't quite know what the post-corona world will look like. But I think all of the major trends that, that we as scale up investors, venture technology investors ha- have been looking at over the last few years. So many of them continue to be strengthened and will be strengthened by this. And that's what makes it such an exciting time T- together with just the number of repeat entrepreneurs now that, that are coming up here in Europe. It, 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 I, I continue to be very, very bullish about the next few years.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, Yeah, I second that. So, Austin, thank you so much for your time, your humility, your humanity on today's podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Gary. And again, thank you so much for inviting me to have this great chat. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com
1: for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.